All right, you ready? Mark chapter 13. I want you to take your Bible and turn there with us. As you turn there, I'll tell you this morning, we're picking up right where we left off last week. It's a continuation of last Sunday. If time wasn't a factor, if you didn't like to eat lunch, we would have just stayed here last week and, and gone through it because it really all goes together. Today's a continuation. It's part two. If you're with us last week, I hope you remember how we began and kind of the, the theme that ran through the sermon was the idea of expectations. We talked about the value and the benefits of knowing what's coming. This is true, isn't it? That proper expectations can serve as a warning. It can help us to be cautious. Proper expectations can serve as a motivator. They can push us to take action. Proper expectations can also serve as a source of incredible hope. It's good to have proper expectations as we look to the future. And as Christians, we should be thankful for this, that God has told us in so many respects what to expect. As Christians, we don't have to go through life blindly. And as we just discussed, when it does seem blind, we know who we can trust. Do we know everything we want to know about the future? Not by a long shot. But God has given us what we need. He's told us what this life will be like and what we can expect in the days to come. And we get that in the scriptures. The Bible has a lot to say, not only about the past, but about the future. And not only about eternity, but about the future of this world and how things will be brought to an end. Last week, as we dove into Mark chapter 13, we began to consider part of what Jesus says to his disciples about what's to come. It's a conversation, a, a teaching from Jesus that came at a really critical point. The story of Jesus and his disciples. Remember, Mark 13, we're on the cusp of the crucifixion, just days away. The disciples don't know yet, but six weeks from this point, they're going to watch Jesus. His feet are going to lift up off the ground. He's going to ascend into the clouds and into heaven. They don't understand that yet. But Jesus does. He knows his departure is coming quickly. And before he leaves, he takes this opportunity to tell his disciples about what's to come. What's he doing? He's setting expectations. It's important. At this point, if Jesus said nothing, their perspective is pretty skewed. With this conversation, he's helping them to not be caught off guard. It's a timely teaching. It's a teaching that started with a conversation about the temple. Remember the setting? Jesus and his disciples, are, they're walking out of the temple. They're walking out of Jerusalem when one of them comments about the greatness of the temple. Its size, its majesty. I described it for you last week a little bit. The temple of Jesus' day was one of the architectural wonders of the world. It's no surprise, it's not surprising that one of the disciples would turn back and say, Jesus, man, just look at it. But what does come as a surprise is where Jesus takes the conversation from there. He doesn't enter into a conversation about architectural wonders or even about the glory of God. If you have your Bibles open, look back at chapter 13, verse 1. 
A little bit of a recap. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, this conversation took a turn, right? They're walking, the disciple is marveling, and Jesus says, by the way, it's all coming down. It's a big announcement. And it's an announcement that elicits a question, and a good question, a, a two-part question, actually. The first part is this. When? This is what the disciples want to know. When is this going to happen? And the second part of the question is, what are the signs? How will we know that this is coming? Good questions, and particularly significant when we recognize, and we talked about this last week, what the disciples believed the destruction of the temple meant. See, there's two events in their mind that are combined as one. For them, the destruction of the temple is the announcement of the final day when God will come in judgment and establish his kingdom on earth. So what they hear is Jesus announcing the end of the world, the end of the age, the final consummation of all things. Heightens the question, doesn't it? When's that going to happen? And how will we know? What are the signs of its coming? And so we started working through Jesus' answer. We got up to verse 13 last week, and Jesus is describing what they should expect and what they should watch for. And by the way, it's not pretty. Jesus describes false teachers coming in and deceiving many. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famine. And on top of all that, intense persecution for the followers of Christ. Needless to say, it isn't what the disciples expected. It's not a declaration of victory yet. That's coming. But Jesus says that before the victory, before the kingdom on earth, there are other things that must happen first. What we saw last week is the events, or Jesus describes the events, but what I wanted to push us to consider last week is that the events are really secondary what Jesus says over and over is, here's what you need to do. It's really a passage about action and preparation and readiness. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to be overwhelmed. He doesn't want them to be taken off course. And church, let me just say this as an aside. This is why we must be, know God's word. So we're not deceived. So we're not overwhelmed. So we're not taken off course. I won't re-preach all of last week's sermon. But what you're going to see this morning is more of the same. He's preparing his disciples and he's preparing us. He's setting expectations so we will be on guard, so we'll be ready. So we won't be surprised when difficulties come. And you may already know this, but I should say it. This week, even more than last week, is a hard passage to understand. Arguably the hardest in the Gospel of Mark. Until we get to chapter 16 and have to decide what to do with that. So 
So with that said, this week we're going to have to answer some hard questions. We're going to have to do a little hard thinking. I'll try to carry the weight of it for you. But here's my fear when we come to a passage like this, a passage that's hard to understand and maybe a bit confusing at times. My fear is that you may hear this sermon and you may think, that's great. That's cool that Matthew thought through all that. That's cool that we got to learn about it. It Has nothing to do with tomorrow. That's a temptation when we come to texts like this. To think, okay, how could what happened 2,000 years ago or what may happen 2,000 years from now, how does that have anything to do with my life today? And I get it. We could be tempted to think it's a colossal waste of time to think about distant history or faraway future when you're just trying to figure out how to get through this week. For you, some of you, the most pressing thing right now is that school's about to start and you're wondering if COVID's just going to go bananas. For some of you, you have a new job and it's all-consuming. Some of you have an old job and it's all-consuming. Some of you have new babies that are taking all of your energy and all of your attention. Some of you are laser-focused on figuring out how to pay the bills. Others trying to find the right doctor to... Figure out what's going on in your body. These are the things that are pressing in us, aren't they? And then you come in, and I'm preaching on the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the end of the world. And if I'm not careful, even I start to wonder on a Saturday night as I lay in bed, why am I preaching Mark 13 tomorrow? These people have problems. Here's the deal, church. Here's why I went to bed easy last night and why I hope you'll be all in for the next 20 or 25 minutes. Because I believe that if we don't have passages like this one and others like it, then we don't have what we need to keep pursuing Christ in the day-to-day aspects of life. We need this. What we have here is God telling us what's to come. And if even if we can't fully understand or grasp every detail of it, our hope is this, that in the midst of all the chaos around us, passages like this remind us that God's in control. The chaos of tomorrow or the chaos of yesterday is not a surprise to him. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's accomplishing his will. Passages like Mark 13, 14 through 23 tell us the means by which God is answering the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's because of passages like this that we can wake up tomorrow and trust God that he's working out his plan not only in the world, but in our lives and even when things seem upside down or backwards. With that said, Let's go to Mark chapter 13. I want to read for you verses 14 through 23. Hear the word of God. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. 
And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not help happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom God chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Spoken by Christ, given to us. And I pray that we will hear what the Spirit of God has to say to each of us. Okay. You ready? Before we jump in, there is a question that has to be answered. Maybe a question that's already in your mind, or may, maybe not. Here's the question. As we read this passage, this announcement from Jesus, is he talking about an event that's already taken place, or is he talking about something that's still ahead of us? Now, for some of you, you this is why you're here. Answer the question, Pastor. Others of you, maybe most of you, didn't even know you should ask this question, and that's okay too. Let's, let's consider it. Jesus is saying some really specific things here. He's describing what seems to be the coming of one who will defile the temple. He's telling people to flee from Jerusalem. And he's saying that there's coming an event that is, here's our word, unprecedented. Okay? Even more so than COVID. So here's the question again. Is what Jesus is telling the disciples something that they would experience and that has already passed today, or is this something that we're waiting and watching for that's coming in the future? And perhaps you've been taught one of those or the other, and you didn't know the other point of view existed. And let me just kind of help you, because there are Bible teachers that you know and read and listen to and respect and trust who answer this question differently from one another. That, that should be said. There's some who look at this passage and look backwards and others who read it and look forward and then there's me. And there's other people like me. And I think there's more here than what we can only see by looking back. And there's more here than we can only see by looking forward. I think this is one of the times in scripture where we see the wisdom of God on display as he informs both the first generation of Christians and all of us who are still looking forward to his return. I'm going to try to explain. I think Jesus is preparing the disciples he was with for what they would go through before their death. And he's preparing us for what's coming at the end of time. Remember the disciples who are about to face suffering and persecution. And he's preparing them for those events. Yet what they would go through, I believe, is a shadow or a pointer of more to come. So Jesus, as we read this, and this is where it's 
hard is that Jesus is weaving together descriptions of two very significant events. So he's preparing the disciples for the first and partial fulfillment and preparing Christians of all time for the final and complete fulfillment. If that sounds like cheating, you have to know that this is not unique to Mark chapter 13. We can go back to the prophecy of the Old Testament. There are prophecies, because remember, those who were prophesying didn't always recognize that Jesus would come twice, right? So there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that are partially fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and are more fully fulfilled at his second coming. Remember the Old Testament prophet said, the one is coming who will save us all. And then he came. And then he left. And he's coming again. And so we see this partial fulfillment that's pointing to a fuller fulfillment. And I think it's exactly what's happening right here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is making an announcement that will be partially fulfilled in the lifetime of those who are there with him. But it's a shadow or a pointer of things that are still to come. And some of the specifics of the passage are more specific to what they will endure. And some of the specifics of the passage are more specific to what is still to come. I've stalled long enough. We've got to talk about it. The abomination of desolation. What the thunder, right? Look at it again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And if you never laugh while you're reading the Bible, then you're not paying attention. Because <laughs> he just makes a statement that is so layered and so complex and says, you get it, right? <laughs> there's not a footnote. There's not an appendix. Just this super layered statement. But we do have more. Let's, let's, let's just slow down. This is what I <laughs> tell myself all week. Just slow down. Just look at it. Let's just start with the English. Because abomination of desolation, that's a big phrase. What's an abomination? It's something that's disgraceful or repulsive. And Jesus says there's an abomination, something that's disgraceful or repulsive that's going to bring desolation or destruction. Some translations say it's the abomination that brings desolation. And I think that helps. Okay, so far so good. Notice this also, that Jesus is using it somewhat as a title, right? There's this abomination that's going to bring desolation, and he speaks of it as if it's a person or a group of people. Jesus says, the abomination of desolation will be standing where he ought not to be. We won't talk now about metaphorical or literal, but what we see Jesus describing here is destruction... It's being brought in the temple. That helps, but if that's all we had, we still wouldn't have much. But what we also recognize, I think this is why he said, let the reader understand. He's cueing us, Mark is. Remember Daniel talked about this? Remember Daniel in chapter 9 and in chapter 11 and chapter 12? He used this same phrase. You remember Daniel? He's the one that was in the lion's den. He was a prophet of God, and God spoke to him in dreams and in visions. He told him about things to come. Maybe you want to read Daniel over the next couple weeks. That'd be a good use of your time. 
Part of what Daniel prophesied was that someone would come into the temple of God who would disgrace it or dishonor it. Let me just read one of the examples for you. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. He says, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So when Jesus says this, this isn't a new concept. Let the reader understand. Daniel's speaking of someone or a group of people who come in and desecrate and blaspheme the temple of God. And what we know is that a time came when something very similar, or maybe exactly like what Daniel described, happened. It was in 167 BC when the king of Syria led an army into Jerusalem and he set himself up in the temple and did all kinds of wicked things. Google 167 BC, king of Syria, temple. You can read about all the awful things he did. But now here's Jesus essentially quoting Daniel, but Jesus isn't looking backwards, is he? He's looking forward. It's as if he wants us to remember what Daniel said, to remember what's happened in the past, and he builds on it. Do you remember how in the past the temple has been desecrated? There's more to come. Just like the king of Syria brought abomination that caused desolation, there is more. And I believe even the other prophecies in Daniel chapter 9, chapter 12, are some of those that, that look forward. Jesus makes an announcement, and what we know is that 40 years after Jesus says this, in 70 AD, the Romans would come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And I don't think there's any way of denying that part of what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, he's preparing his disciples for what would happen to them and to the temple just 40 years later. So much that could be said here. I think one thing that points to the historicity of this is the way Luke tells the story. In Luke chapter 21, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And we can read the history about the armies of Rome surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what was coming. And some people stop there, and I think we stop too soon if we do. I think there are both near and far fulfillments in this passage. I think what happened in 70 AD is a shadow of more to come. So what we have here is Jesus preparing his disciples for what they would face and telling us of what is still to come. And I say that in part because we have Paul later on describing another event that I think is later than 70 AD. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 to 12. Paul's talking to people who are curious about the coming of Christ, wondering if it's past or if it's still to come. He says this in chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, 
We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So we're talking about the coming of the Lord, right? His, his return. He says there's something that's going to happen before that. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. So see this, the lawless one coming and being revealed. And then right on the hills of that, what's, what, do we, what do we read? The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, but they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they also may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul describes a man, this man of lawlessness, who's going to come and do what? The exact kind of things that Jesus is describing in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. And there we see again this coming of Christ. Mark 13 speaks of the abomination of desolation, which I believe happened partially in AD 70. A partial fulfillment and a shadow because there's still more to come. Here Paul describes the man, he calls the man of lawlessness, other parts of scripture call him the Antichrist, who will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And we'll just have to come back another day and decide together if this is one person or a group of people or we can talk about the Antichrist another day. But for today, what, what we see is Jesus preparing his disciples for the future. Jesus is pointing to a rebellious uprising at the end of time. He's preparing his disciples. And I think the fact that this is for them also and not only for us looking forward is because of the details of the next few verses. Look at verse 14. We've seen the sign, now we see the response to the sign. Verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out of it. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. For alas, excuse me, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So in the first part of verse 14, we see a sign of what's to come. And Jesus, he starts to give instructions. Here's what to do when it starts happening. Opposition, destruction is coming. And notice that the instructions aren't to stay and fight. He says, when you see it coming, 
Get out. What's happening? I believe that God was coming to bring judgment against the nation of Israel and to destroy the temple. And yet Jesus protects those who are his. He says, get out. This isn't for you. God's protecting his people, and it's a command that comes with a sense of urgency, which we see in the illustrations there. He says, if someone's on top of the house, so picture a house with a flat roof and stairs on the outside. So these aren't inside stairs, they're outside stairs. He says, if you're on the roof and you see it coming, go down the stairs, don't go back in the house, just leave. And if you're out in the field and you've taken off your coat because it's hot and you laid it aside and you're on the other side of the field working and you see this coming, don't go back across the field to get your coat, just leave. What is it? It's a, a sense of urgency. This is coming and it's going to be time to take action. Well, these may sound like silly or extreme commands. There's, there's a point. It's a sense of urgency. And along with that, Jesus introduces some potential hindrances to urgency. Alas, for those who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants. And if you don't have kids, you don't fully appreciate how much longer it takes to get moving when you have someone who's very pregnant or with a young child. It just takes longer. Think about fleeing a city on foot into the mountains in your ninth month of pregnancy when you've got a crying baby. And by the way, the mom couldn't go back in and get the pack and play and all the other things. She just had to leave. There's a time of trouble coming. And I also think, and you can, you can make a judge for yourself on this. I think there's a, a note of compassion in the voice of Christ. As he announces hard things coming, and then he says, man, alas for those who are pregnant. There's going to be those who are pregnant, aren't there? There are going to be those who have young babies. I think what we see here is the heart of Jesus for those who have to go through hard times and on those for whom the times are the hardest. And he's prayerful. He says, pray that it wouldn't happen in winter. Which my first reaction is because it's cold, but other smarter people have suggested that it's because in the winter the, the rivers and the streams would get really high. And it'd be hard to, to get out. And also in winter, it's hard to grab fruit or grain along the way. But in summer, the, the creeks would be low, an easy passage, and maybe food for the trip. What do we see here? I think we see the heart of Jesus for the pain that his people are going to go through. But nevertheless, it must come. And as we think about hard times and we know that God allows difficulties we must be reminded that he's not distant or uncaring. Over and over, the Bible reminds us that he's compassionate towards his people. So as we find ourselves in times of suffering, by his will, don't think that it doesn't come from a loving hand. He doesn't want his people to be unaware. He tells us of what's to come. He's setting expectations and he cares for us. You remember where we are in the story? It's easy to get disconnected in a passage like this. We have Jesus with his disciples. He's telling them what's coming. And if left to their own imagination, this is not what they would have expected. So he's helping them. And he's helping us. 
He knows that if he says nothing and all of these things take place, many of them will fall away. Maybe all of them would lose their faith. But he doesn't allow them to go into these things blindly. And he doesn't allow us to walk through a sin-cursed word blindly. Romans chapter 8 tells us this world, creation, it groans, and we ourselves groan. If you feel the groaning, know that's natural. Oh, but the suffering of this time is not worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed. Jesus is pointing to the things the disciples would experience. I think he's also pointing to something far worse. And, and here's why I think this passage one of the reasons is more than just 70 AD because in verse 19, we see this. In those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they would face. But at the same time, this particular verse, from our perspective, as we look back and, and I've read about the persecution of those years, it was awful. But I don't think it's fair to say it was the worst it had ever been or the worst it ever be. What Jesus says here is that an intense time of tribulation is coming. He's warning his disciples and he's also instructing us that before the coming of Christ, things will get harder, not easier. He's pointing to tribulation and to distress And yet, even in this, we see a reminder, hey, tribulation's coming, trouble's coming, but guess who's in control? Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Who's in control? God's in control, isn't he? On the one hand, the verse describes the intensity of what's coming, but it also shows that God never loses sight of his work. He never loses sight of his people. Tribulation is coming, but God is the one in control of the end. So far we've seen the sign of the things to come, the severity of the things to come, the response of the things to come, and then another warning. Verse 21, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. We should unpack that phrase sometimes. Be on guard. I've told you all the things beforehand. We're not going to spend here long here. This is very similar to the warnings we saw last week. Trouble's coming. When trouble comes, we're going to start looking for answers. When we start looking for answers, sometimes we're tempted to grab a hold of the first thing that sounds good. Jesus is telling him, be careful. Trouble's going to come. There are going to be people who try to deceive you. Be warned. Be on guard. Be aware. Be alert. Don't be surprised by what's coming and don't be led astray. Praise God that he tells us what to expect. And that brings us to the end of the passage. And because it's 10 after 11, and you like to eat lunch, we're not going to go on. But man, you have to see what's next. Because Jesus does tell us, and I think he's kind to tell us that before the end comes, trouble will come. But don't forget what happens at the end. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, again, I think this pushes us and pushes the whole thing forward. Forward. 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Oh, we're going to celebrate next week, church. We're going to talk about the splitting of the sky and the return of our Lord. We have a lot of hope. But I do want to try to wrap up if we're going to stop where we stopped. What do we do with passages like Mark 13, 14 to 23? What do we do with announcements of tribulation and distress? And how does that help us this week? I want to suggest four things. Won't take long. Four things. What we should take away from just the passage we considered this morning without looking ahead. Four things. First, This passage is a reminder that God has a plan and that he's working out his plan and that should give us hope. Because when we look at the world, sometimes we think it's out of control. Know this, God has a plan and he is working out his plan, so take heart. God knows the end because he planned the end and he can't plan the end without the means. He's designed it all. He's sovereign over all things, every part of history in our lives. Your life and the events of last week aren't an accident. This should give us hope. We know that for those who love God, Romans 8, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he conformed to the image of his son so that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has a plan. His plan is good. His plan is the plan of salvation. And this is what we, we talked about last week, and it's worth saying again. We saw this in the last passage, that this plan of distress before the end of the time is part of God's plan to take salvation to the ends of the world. Before the end comes, the gospel will go to all nations. It's also part of God's plan for saving us. That's the first thing. God has a plan. He's working out his plan. Second, this passage is a reminder that God has shared part of his plan with us so that we aren't unaware Do you hear the distinction there? It's one thing for God to have a plan and to be working out his plan. It's a whole other thing that he's shared parts of it with us. We have his word. He didn't have to tell us these things, but he has. Which means when we're worried or unaware, we should go to God's word and be reminded of his promises. Do you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4? The Thessalonians were concerned that they had missed the coming of the Lord and they were concerned about those who had died who they thought may have missed it as well. What's going to happen with those who have gone ahead? And Paul says, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. And he goes on, he talks about the return of Christ. And at the end he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. God has a plan. He's revealed his plan. Why? So that we're not uninformed, so that we're not surprised, and so we can encourage and comfort one another. God has a plan. He's working out his plan. We can trust his promises. Third, this passage is a reminder that the end is coming and that we have a calling to tell others about the work that God has done and is doing. This should give us purpose. 
Admittedly, this one's more indirect, but it must be said. As we come to passages like this, we have a reminder that the end is coming. There is an end. It is coming. And when it comes, there will be judgment for those who don't know God and salvation for those who do. And we are told and given the commission to go and to warn and to tell. Friends, if you believe what this passage says, that an end is coming, and that God himself is going to split the sky and gather all those who are his and send all those who aren't into everlasting punishment, and we have the answer that moves people from judgment to salvation, what are we doing if we're not sharing that message? Oh, church, this should heighten our sensitivity towards the realities of the world and the realities of the souls that sit in the next office or the next house or the next car. Oh, that we would be faithful. Number four, this passage is a reminder that when things are hard, it's not an indication that God has lost control. It should give us comfort. This is kind of a repeat, but I think the change in phrasing helped me at least. Jesus is saying that, God, that things are going to get harder, and when they do, don't think God has lost control. He is aware, and he has a plan. He is on the throne. Your suffering is not wasted. God is working out his plan. This is not an easy passage to understand, and it has not been an easy message to prepare or preach. And so we're here longer than normal because I'm trying to cover all our bases. And I didn't know how to land the plane. So we'll just wait. No. I went back last night and read again 2 Thessalonians, that passage we've already read the first half, 1 to 12. Paul's talking to the church about these end times and the antichrist and all of these things. And I thought, what did he say next? Let me read what he said next and then we'll be done. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says to this church who he's been telling the same kinds of things we've been talking about this morning. He says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trouble's coming, but so is Christ. And all who are his will be with him in glory. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord of our, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and every good word.